That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey, if you haven't already, you got to go to our Patreon page, sign up, and get a copy of the Patreon app on your cell phone so you can participate in the brand new chat room in the Patreon app. Lots of things going on over there on the Patreon page. And by the way, one of the best ways to unwind after a week of relentless chaos is, of course, the After Party podcast presented exclusively on our Patreon page. It's a commercial-free 90-minute podcast every Friday, and it's kind of like eavesdropping on an evening chat between me and my girlfriend, Kimberly Johnson. It's far more personal than the free shows with all kinds of revelations about our personal lives, but with all the latest political commentary in there, too. And it can get really weird and fun. So don't miss out. Subscribe to the After Party level at patreon.com slash Show, And you're also going to get two Shadow Docket episodes included in that level of support every single week. Again, it's patreon.com slash Show. And now let the cartoons begin. The Bob Seska Show. Bob Seska. Did you ever see anything about Seska that made you suspicious? The Bob Seska Show. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, October 25, 2023, and this is the Bob Seska interview on the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Bob. Hello, Bob. Hi, day 1008 of the Biden-Harris administration, 376 days until the 24th presidential election. You can find me on threads and Instagram, the Bob Seska is my name there. Twitter, Bob Seska underscore go, spoutable Bob Seska, our Patreon page is bobseskashow.com. So if you've been paying attention for the last several months of shows, you know that I've been plugging this brand new book by Jeff Charlotte called The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. I swear to God, it's one of the most important volumes of our time, documenting Trumpism, the rise of fascism throughout Trump country. So of course my guest today is the author of that book, Jeff Charlotte. He's conducted some of the best reporting I've read in a long time, and his prose Oh my God, it's beyond awesome. Jeff literally put himself in harm's way, visiting some of these mega churches and Trump rallies on the ground while also engaging with many of the disciples along the way. So please take some time to pick up a copy of The Undertow. I got a link in the description on the Patreon page and at bobseska.com. Meantime, don't forget to support this podcast by subscribing to us on Patreon, bobseskashow.com. Okay, here's my talk with journalist Jeff Charlotte. I've been quoting your book for weeks and weeks now, so it's a real honor to talk with you today, Jeff. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. 
So um, I guess we'll start here. Last night, the Republicans nominated an insurrectionist to be speaker. <laughs> the, the Times called this guy Mike Johnson the most important architect of the coup. This isn't going away, is it, Jeff? No, it's growing. And uh, I think actually, as I'm speaking to you now, uh, I'm just closing on a a new magazine story with my friend Catherine Joyce on um, yeah. what we perceive as as a left to right slide. You know, a former leftist or let people perceive to be leftist, the Glenn Greenwalds, the Matt Taibis and so on, mm-hmm. more and more making common cause with the right. And I think there's a temptation for us to look at the Republican Party in apparent disarray and say, ha ha, and to look at those who are moving rightward and say, so long, good riddance, we didn't need you. But what we're missing there is, I think, the black hole of fascism, which is exerting a really powerful gravitational force. And, you know, whether that's enough, uh, you know, by the time this airs, we'll know whether that was enough to make uh, Mike Johnson, Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana, um, uh, the first 100 percent pro insurrection coup <laughs> speaker of the house well, but either way it shows that the power uh, that that power is there and i think that's what i would i mean i'm using the metaphor of the black hole there but i've got another metaphor which is the title of the book the mm. undertow which yeah. is these really powerful currents mm. and and um even when we're not paying attention to them they are pulling us rightward what is the Venn diagram overlap? What is causing this horseshoe effect you were mentioning between, you know, the, the whatever, I, I, I can't even define exactly what they are. That, that, that category of people that includes Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and all of them. What is the common cause with the far right that they're finding? And, and <laughs> this is the loaded part of the question. Is it the grift? Are they all seeing the business model in participating in politics this way? So I think the answer to so many of these questions we can, we can learn from improv comedy. It's yes, yes, and <laughs> you know it, it's always and, and you're talking about you use the metaphor of Venn diagram. Yeah. I mean that's our clue. It's yes, and it's many things at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually that you know that horseshoe theory, which is this idea that the extreme left and the extreme right you know, kind of curve around to meet one another and yeah. that they're both further from the center, um, which isn't really a theory. It comes to us from a French novelist. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's correct. Uh, Nomi Khan in her new book, and here I am selling other people's books, uh, <laughs> Doppelganger yeah, yeah, writes about great, great book. Um, th- these theorists who are sort of looking at uh, a German um, process during the pandemic and they're calling it diagonalism, right? Mm. Um, but I think Beyond, I think I'm going to go with the yes and, the improv theory, the yes and theory. And that's a little bit like what I'm trying to get at with in the central essay, the book of Ashley Babbitt, who instead of looking at these sort of, I'm always more interested in like what's happened to Taibbi, what happened to Greenwald. I don't know. I don't know them. And they're not, you know, giving me access to their journals. Um, But Ashley Babbitt, I was able to look at really, really closely. This is, of course, the uh, 30-something-year-old white woman who led a charge in the Capitol on January 6th, wearing a Trump flag, not unarmed, as is commonly said. The cover photo of my book is the knife she was carrying to, as she put it, storm the Capitol. Hmm. And she was shot dead and and killed and became a martyr of the right wing of, of the fascist movement. And... So many folks after she died, I was as fascinated by the ways they went searching in her past for confirmation that Ashley was always trash. <laughs> and um, and now her mother has, who is apolitical, her mother has become a fascist. In the book, I write about the moment where you can almost see it happening. Yeah. She's at a podium 
she's crying. And some Black Lives Matters protesters are chanting, trying to drown her out with Black Lives Matter. Um, and she just clicks from grief for her daughter to rage and she decides to direct it at them and starts chanting to their Black Lives Matter. She starts chanting Ashley Babbitt, but no one is born a fascist. And so, you know, whether you're making some money or you're finding community or you're just brokenhearted or disillusioned or as in Ashley Babbitt's case, who had been a kind of default, I say a default liberal Hmm. most of her life, but actually, in her circles where not a lot of folks had access to a full college education. They, they didn't have any language like neoliberalism or anything like that. They didn't have that critique. Uh, she was the one who was always Googling and telling people and telling people about Obama and so on. But she saw this undertow. She saw herself getting in insurmountable debt, yep. interest rates no honest person could pay, you know, to quote Bruce Springsteen, Atlantic City, right? Mm-hmm. She, she, she saw herself in Southern California, blue, blue Southern California, where the houselessness problem has always been big and has been exploding. And she didn't have the language for saying, you know, structural this or that. She was just looking at guys shitting in her front yard. And I think there's a moment, you know, we speak sometimes of compassion fatigue. I don't excuse where she went, but there was a moment when Donald Trump came along and she's like, you know what? Instead of trying to be a good person, what if I just lean back into this undertow? Yeah. What if I stop, stop swimming against the current? What if I just let it carry me? Let whiteness carry me. Let my anger carry me. Let my blame other people carry me. And I think that far more than the grift, which is never persuasive to me. And I've been writing about the right. And for years and years, everyone, I'm like, maybe. I mean, everyone's got to eat. People like to get paid. <laughs> But that doesn't mean that they don't come to believe what they believe. Does Ashley Babbitt's mom understand that what she wants is fascism? I mean, do they grasp that, that where this is all heading is sort of toward this idiocratic version of fascism in the United States? Do they get that? Some do. I don't think Ashley Babbitt's mother does. I think she has, you know, nor Ashley Babbitt's uh, uh uh, Aaron Babbitt, who was a sort of big bodybuilder lunkhead, hmm. um, who adored Ashley, was not political. And like you go back, you know, before the end, um, another thing people don't know about Ashley Babbitt is that she was queer in practice, if not a name. They were a threesome, uh, Ashley, Aaron, and they had a girlfriend who lived with them. And um, hmm. and there's like these sweet videos almost, except you ignore what's happening. Where, where the girlfriend and Aaron were like make videos of Ashley like leaning in, watching a Trump rally. They thought it was ridiculous and boring. They thought Trump was stupid. Who cares? They live by the beach. Let's go to the beach. They didn't want to do this stuff. They had, you know, they had fruit trees in their front yard. We have the good life. Why are you going toward this, Ashley? Yeah. Now he too is a fascist. And I think the fascist, look, what fascism does is it's very good at exploiting grief. Yeah and transforming it into anger and yet telling you that that anger is a kind of love. And I think there are, I mean, I know there are, there are folks within this fascist movement who understand that what they're doing is fascism, um, who understand who are explicitly and openly against democracy, the folks who are admiring Putin, uh, looking to Hungary's Viktor Orban, who still says he's doing democracy, but he's saying it's illiberal democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, the democracy where not everyone gets a say. That yeah. democracy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, but 
And I think it, certainly Stephen Miller, Steve Bannon, you know, there's a there's a lot of intellectuals in this movement. I don't think people sort of recognize that. Yeah. They don't need, you know, and they, of course, they understand like, hey, why don't we just call the left fascism? Now, I'm not a fascist. You're a fascist. You're a fascist. <laughs> right. And, I know, uh, I know you, know, you are, but what am I? This thing yeah. called a library with history books that we can go and we can find out what words mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. right? There is, you can, you can point to authoritarianism on the left. It's there. It's not fascism. That's a different thing. Yeah. That's a word that means a thing. And it means a cult of personality. It means a purification project, usually around ethnic terms, but not necessarily exactly. Mm-hmm. It means an idea of mystic destiny. And most of all, I think it means a reverence for violence. Yeah. Not just that like American politics has always had violence, um, but violence as redemptive, as regenerative, and this is really important, as fun. Yeah. Some, something that makes you feel good. You see that in the Trump rallies. I try and write about that book. Mm-hmm. Erotic, a militant erotic charge to the way he describes decapitations and disembowelments. Yeah. And the protester in the face. It's turning people on. Right. He seems like eerily fascinated with death and the process of dying. Like I've seen him talk and and it it takes on this weird tone. Like I remember him talking about how Andrew Jackson's wife died and he was just, he was going on and on about how this woman died while Andrew Jackson was president in this extremely kind of morbid, eerie way. It was, it was so strange to hear, especially someone who is so known for his toxic positivity. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, the inner goth girl of Donald Donald Trump. Um, but, uh, I th- but I think there's, uh, look, there's there's also that true, that's also true. One of the things I read in the book, I'm always interested in the aesthetics of yeah. fascism. Yeah. And some people say, well, that's just branding or whatever. No, fascism is a movement. It's not so much an ideology as an aesthetics. It grows in the modern sense out of an Italian avant-garde artistic movement called futurism. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's what, you know, and the art, futuristic art was fabulous. It's not... It's not bad, um, but it was fascist. And um, Trump is, I think, primarily, I would argue, an aesthetic project. But that project of, I like your term, toxic positivity, right? Yeah. He's so inspired, as I write, by Norman uh, Vincent Peale, the yep. best-selling author of, uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, the Power um, of Positive Thinking. Say, thank yeah. you. The Power yeah. of Positive Thinking, whom he calls his, his pastor, a guy who said, like, basically the whole message of the Christianity is how to be a good salesman, you know? Yeah, sell, yeah. sell, sell. Right. But the flip side of that and a, a guy with a will to power like Trump, and we know he's a germaphobe mm-hmm. and know he's speaking to a kind of fear of death, which is a fascination of death. And I look at the imagery that surrounds it and especially most especially the Punisher skulls. You see him on flags. You see him on shirts. You see them on trucks. Yeah. Um, uh, it's uh, and I mean, I remember being at one Trump rally, a whole family and I, they, they must have had these made. Uh, uh, mom, dad, kids, and they were like um, uh, the pink ladies from Greece. They all had these pink jackets with <laughs> bedazzled Trump Punisher skulls. This is a Punisher skull oh my with God. A, a swirl of, of, Trump, of Trump hair on top of it. So what's with all these skulls? The, 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 the Tottenkopf, forgive my German, but the death head mm-hmm. of, of, of fascism. And... Uh, I think it is a way of, I think, you know, there's a lot of theorizing with this over the years, the sort of the denial of death. When, I, when, I, when I'm out on the road and I see a truck, you know what a coal roller is? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 
that are goosed up to like, hey, not only am I not going to, you know, not waste gas, I'm going to waste as much as I can and be <laughs> as loud and gross about it. In the sm- like, that's not, people look at that as climate change. Someone doesn't believe in climate change. And I'm like, no, I actually think I look at that in person. I, I think I see someone who believes in it. I tell a story like this. Uh, uh, there's something called Yiddish. It was the language of the Eastern European Jews, mm-hmm. uh, pre-Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. And it was a very radical community in America. There was a huge Yiddish anarchist community, right? And the anarchists, they reject God and they're radicals and everything else. And on Yom Kippur, the high holy day of Judaism, where you're supposed to fast, they would have a pig roast, hmm. right? Yeah. Which is not kosher. <laughs> um, <laughs> and But that's that's not saying, if, if you really don't believe in God, what do you do on Yom Kippur? Same thing you did the day before. Who cares? Right, nothing. right, right. This is, see how much I don't believe in you? That's what the pole rollers are. Yeah. See how much I reject this fear, that the heat that I too can feel, the flooding that I too see, but I refuse to accept it. That's Ashley Babbitt, you know? Wow. Who sees the brokenness of things and then says, hey, you know what? What if I just... What if I just say no and it feels awesome? And here's this powerful man, and I know he's blessed because look how rich he is. And I follow him. And she did to her death. Yep. Is this is this movement built around the drive toward fascism, or is it a rejection of democracy? Or is it maybe a combination of the two of the things? I mean, it could very easily be that. But I find that when I, of course, when I was reading uh, The Undertow and all the other uh, research I've been doing as part of my job, is uh, I see this, this giving up, this kind of I don't know what you would call it, the politics of sweatpants. I'm just going to wear sweatpants around all day because I've given up on democracy. It's too hard to convince people using words and votes. So therefore, er, we have to fight them. What's the line of thinking along those lines, Jeff? Uh, yes, and. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I only have one answer here. Yeah, like, yeah. No, but I'll say this. Look, I think, you know, as someone who, uh, and I know you've been thinking about this for a long time, and as yeah. someone who's been studying right-wing movements mm-hmm. in the United States, around the world, usually firsthand by immersing myself in them for, for 20 years, and it's sort of looking at social movement theory, um, uh, you know, I, I hear sometimes from I identify as a, a left and I hear from left friends like, well, you know, it's horrible, but it's always been like this. And yeah. I'm, I'm going to tell you, no, no, it hasn't that there um, that what's happened is that the right was never monolithic. Um, and there was all kinds of dip, which is good, right? There's yeah. all kinds of fractions and so on. And that's what allowed the sort of establishment conservatism to reign supreme, mm-hmm. right? The factions couldn't line up when a social movement left, right, whatever, becomes powerful is when for whatever reason, those currents get strong enough and it starts converging. So when you've got proud boys marching with traditionalist Catholics and evangelicals, these are folks who do not get along, right? Uh, With libertarians who don't believe in God, you have all these folks coming together. Then you have this really powerful thing. So you got the sweatpants people and you have the people like uh, Notre Dame, uh, brilliant Notre Dame scholar, Patrick Deneen um, uh, of the post-liberalism who's saying, you know, maybe democracy doesn't really work exactly. Um, yeah. And But, you know, these are the guys who've been doing the deep reading and thinking about it. They're all moving in the same direction. We saw that on January 6th. It's easy. The, 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 the myth of the mob, right, is always 
that um, the unity it finds in its rage must have preceded it. But all we got to do is to start picking out the strands of the people who showed up at January 6th. And that's actually much scarier. If it was just one gang, right? One gang of several thousand. But these people are coming from all over. They're coming. Ashley Babbitt uh, uh, from Southern California, yeah. a, a former Democrat, uh, Proud Boys, military veterans. Yes, we know that. But they weren't all right wing. I write in the book about a guy named George Riley, uh, who I met in Sacramento at an Ashley Babbitt rally. Uh, describes himself as a uh, uh, Iroquois French Canadian Jew, and then he waits a beat and he says, "For Jesus," mm-hmm. um, and he raided the Capitol uh, wearing what he described as his war paint and feathers in his hair, and was meaning and saying, "I'm taking my land back." Understood himself as a uh, a Native American, and if you see, he's an outlier, by the way. Uh, right now, last statistic I just saw is that 40 percent of the Native American community is leaning toward Trump. Wow. Uh, uh, and this is what I'm trying to tell people is no one's immune. Yeah. Fascism has a big gravity and it can draw, you know, you think you, that's why I use that black hole. The black hole is like drawing in all the debris around it. It's not distinguishing uh, between it. Um, and that sounds terrifying and nihilistic. But <laughs> you can, it's you accurate recognize. though, yeah. It's accurate, but also I think if you can recognize it, you can kind of change your strategies because right now, uh, you know, so many of us who like democracy, the left, the liberal, we keep imagining someone else is going to save us. We keep imagining that some constituency, the young, the young will save us. The yeah. young voters don't go for this. Well, one, they do. And two, I've been hearing the young will save us since I was young 30 years ago. It's not gonna- <laughs> right. Diversification will save us. Mm-hmm. As I write in the book, and Anthea Butler, I'll sell another book on, on, on your show, Anthea Butler's White Evangelical Racism. If you're looking for a, a short, sweet, sharp primer into how this stuff works, that you can't do better than that book. She's a historian of the Black church, and she's looking at, among other things, how white evangelical racism works. But she talks about something called the promise of whiteness. Huh. And, and it's, a, it's an old force in American life by which whiteness as because it's not whiteness isn't a real thing it's a, an abstraction yeah so you know you take a character like candace owen she gets to get in the who's a black far-right commentator she gets to get in on that so-called promise and that pulls people in when you look at that and you say okay so diversification alone is not going to save us the youth alone are not going to save us what are you left with save ourselves we got to organize nothing you know there's no cavalry coming we're it Right. That's terrifying. <laughs> because I take a look around and I'm like, worry it? Oh my God. Jeez, that's you horrible. Me, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. You know, one of the through lines in the book is this marriage between uh, megachurch grifters and Republican politics, not only in terms of ideology, but in terms of style. Um, yeah. When did this business model start forming? When did the. I mean, obviously, the MAGA movement is the current formation of this. But in terms of republicanism, embracing this way of manipulation, this means of uh, dazzling an audience with lights and music and spectacle and rage and all of these things that trigger our lizard brain. How did this style begin forming as a means of furthering political ends? How did that uh, sort of traveling roadshow kind of Steve Martin in and uh, leap of faith, that sort of thing. How did that get started? Well, I, I'm going to go with maybe the uh, the um, the Ulysses S. Grant 
era. Wow. <laughs> as, oh, as man. Okay. Book. Yeah. We're going and, back. Yeah. I think I, so I think what happened with the, uh, the particular formation of the Christian right that begins sort of, or, or it comes to the attention of, of the secular press in the 1980s around Reagan and there, there hardens into this kind of conventional wisdom that there is a religious right and that there's a business right. And yeah. these two things do exist, but, um, that becomes such a concretized idea that it, it, obscures the the very real Venn diagram that had been there. And I say, I say going back to the late 19th century, because in my uh, a previous book of mine called The Family, mm-hmm. um, uh, I'm looking at like one of the very first megachurches built in the United States, which was built in the late 19th century by a guy named Charles Grandison Finney, who was remembered affectionately because he was an abolitionist. And, you yeah. know, God bless him for that. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also a fierce anti-labor activist. And boy, did he know how to put on a show. <laughs> and the big church and i mean it was fabulous right so i say like that marriage was there the family that organization that runs the national prayer breakfast they begin in the 19 1935 with the conviction that the fdr's new deal is an affront to god and that the united states drift towards socialism is causing the depression because god is punishing it so they say let's get godly men together where do you find godly men the national association of manufacturers of course <laughs> you can tell i mean they're rich how could they be rich if they yeah. if god didn't bless them and you know this group has been do they still exist yes mike pence well mike pence maybe not so powerful right but the transaction that we saw in trump that did change right so it's always been a little closer yeah but trump you know, everyone said, like, it's why I resist the word grift, because mm. grift sort of suggests that it's like that the deal doesn't change you. Mike uh, Mike Pence and Trump made a deal. Trump looked around. He says, who do I need? And he needed the Christian. He needed the Christian right, Christian nationalists. Um, and he started, he said, he he, has, he did some very smart things. He said, you know, because remember in the beginning, the big Christian right warlords were against him. And he says, I don't care. Most people don't really know who they are. If I just get some pastors and I put pictures of the pastors with me, <laughs> most people don't know who they are. Yeah. Like, oh, this is West, right? And it worked. He made that deal. It's a transaction. But Trump knows this. Everyone knows this. Mm-hmm. The transaction transforms you. Um, I'm not saying that Trump got God. Um, I'm saying that Trumpism, the fascism that grew out of it. Yeah became something else. And the Christian nationalism of Mike Pence, which had always been quite friendly toward big business, became something else, that they transformed one another. And this is a really essential point, I argue. I'm talking about this earlier book of mine called The Family. I got a chapter in that book called The F Word. The F Word is fascism. And in that, I argued that even though The Family, which actually recruited post-World War II Nazi war criminals to advise its U.S. Congress members, um, and and the Nazis who wouldn't be allowed in the United States, they would fly congressmen over to take counsel with them. I still said, look, this is not fascism, because they they had said they said, look, you want to you can we'll, we'll redeem you, but you got to switch out the Fuhrer for the Father. You got to worship mm-hmm. God. I thought that fundamentalism in America would prevent full fascism from coming to bloom because we would never have a cult of personality. Our fundamentalists wouldn't allow it. They love Jesus too much. I was wrong. Yeah, And I write that in the book. Trump brought the aesthetic of the strong man, which is we've seen in so many other countries. Mm-hmm. When he rides down that golden escalator, will we, we, you know, scare quotes, embrace it? 
enough of us did. Enough of us said, yeah, Jesus is okay. And that's where you get to, you know, some of the churches I visit in the book, a church in Yuba City, California. Uh, listeners might have heard it. It became virally famous for a while for presenting on stage General Mike Flynn, mm -hmm. uh, customized AR-15. Uh, fascinating thing about that little mega church, they got rid of their crosses. They don't have any crosses. The pulpit's made of swords. Um, the pastor explained to me, it's wartime now. It's time for wartime theology. Oh. And the cross, he says, I love the cross, but it's weak tea. Oh, you know? God. It's, 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 it's not a time for that. Yeah. It's a time. It's a time for war. And you can say, oh, that's not really Christian. Religion is as religion does, and they are invoking an old, old crusades tradition. Um, and they're not the only ones. I saw churches across the country. I write about two in the book. Yeah. They have their own militias. And these aren't backwoods, redneck churches. These are suburban mega churches. Monday night, men's group. Wednesday night, youth group. Tuesday, new militia recruit night. Men with guns lining the back. Um, men with guns who escorted me out at, at one of these churches. Um, that's new. That part is new. That militance is new. Yeah. Uh, so they're not just indoctrinating their disciples in terms of wrapping their heads around the idea of civil war. They're literally recruiting soldiers for the civil war. Is that what's happening? Well, so part of it, what happened, so the undertow, you know, the undertow began actually before January 6th. I was like, yeah. all right, I've been recording on these movements for so long. Mm -hmm. And I see some of these currents that are coming through. So, so some of the early chapters are looking at the so-called men's rights movement and yeah. the prosperity gospel and all these kinds of things. And I said, look, this Trumpism didn't come out of nowhere. You know, people have been dismissing as fringe and suddenly all the fringes converge and it's a big river, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then on January 6th, I mean, even though I'd been reporting it, I was still, I was like, this is amazing. And I started hearing academic historians, uh, scholarly historians. I'm married to one, and I know that historians are necessarily cautious. They know that history usually moves slow. Yeah. And that language, civil war talk is was hyperbolic or fringe. But now the historians were saying, huh, the conditions for civil war. Oh, that's pretty scary. So I decided to go out and, you know, drive around and start talking to folks. And it, it there wasn't even it, it, the answer to my question. Civil war was a variation on the improv question. It was like it was yes and it yeah. wasn't yes or no. It was yes and I'm sorry about that, but it must happen. Or yes and I can't wait. And this, uh, you know, the, that church with the, the militia I'm talking about in Omaha, Nebraska, they were talking. They're preaching civil war. They keep on saying no. We're not sure. They used to talk about the rapture. How? When will we don't know when the date will be. Now they're like, we don't know when the Civil War is coming, but it is coming. Arm up. Get ready. Does that mean it's going to happen? No. Nothing's inevitable. Yeah. Big cry of fascism is, is inevitability. But does it mean that all over the country you find people preparing for it and that is going to shape our culture and politics whether or not we come to blows? Yes, that's where we're in. People say, could there be political violence? Are fools. We are living with political violence now. It's simmering in a thousand ways. It's simmering in all the, the pregnant people who are suffering for lack of reproductive rights. The, the wave of trans and queer suicide amongst youth who are despairing. Suicide has many causes, but one of them we know is kids who you can't tell. You can't tell them they're being paranoid anymore. The states are out to get them. They really are. Um, uh, you know, we see, we see just the the, the sparks 
the sparks of violence where you have uh, men with guns lining up outside school libraries, you know? Yeah. And so of course, no shootings happen. So people say, well, it's okay, no shootings happened. This is like taking some matches and lighting them and flicking them into a dry field. Thank God the flames don't catch. And then telling yourself, well, I guess that's a safe activity. <laughs> you know, sooner or later, it's going to be fire. Yeah, yeah. So if the flames do catch, what form does that take? Do they have any sense in terms of the actual format for this coming civil war? Like, is are we talking about guerrilla warfare? Are we talking about sectarian violence? Are we talking about bombings here and there, mass shootings? Or is it, do they have in their mind, you know, a thousand guys in gray uniforms marching against a thousand guys in blue uniforms in the middle of a farm field in Pennsylvania somewhere? What, what is Nobody has that in mind, and that's the good news, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and but the bad news, uh, and here I actually defer. There was a great review of my book. It was great because it made a point that I didn't make that was smarter than anything I made by <laughs> a writer for New York Magazine named Sarah Jones. Grew up in that world in the sort of evangelical right world, yeah. and she's sort of saying, you know, the Civil War is not a battlefield. The Civil War is all, you know, it's it's sort of permeating everything, people who are seceding in their everyday lives, right? Um, and uh, I think, so you get characters, I write in a uh, 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 penultimate chapter of the book is about Wisconsin, which when Roe fell became the only blue state um, to suddenly revert to 1849 law um, uh, forbidding any abortion for any reason. And I went around traveling folks and I ended up meeting a guy in uh, Marinette, Wisconsin, Rob Brum, was uh, the leader of a militia he claimed was uh, 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 five to six thousand strong. And I think that was an, an exaggeration, probably a big exaggeration, hmm. but it was definitely there. I mean, you, you, you saw the evidence. I mean, they were doing trainings. They had serious armaments and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. And Rob doesn't imagine he was at Jan January 6th. Strange character was at January 6th, was carrying, by the way, was carrying his gun and so on. Um, and at the same time, like so many of these characters says it was a hoax. And I'm like, but Rob, are you a hoax? You were there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, but Rob does not imagine marching on the Capitol. Mm. Um, and I think when you get into the real imagination, there was a Louisiana congressman a little while ago who had a, a thing about like, you know, everyone is laughing. Look at these knuckleheads. He had this like weird militia jargon talk, like know your bridges and so on. Mm. Uh, and some numbers and like, this makes no sense. It makes sense. Uh, yeah. He was talking about the ratio of military grade maps, get military grade maps, know your bridges, because what's happening as has happened in various parts of the country, Shasta County, California has effectively seceded. Um, uh, um, there's parts of Wisconsin that have effectively seceded. Um, what Rob imagines is anyone who comes in from outside to enforce, he's got his militia. Yeah, well, it's easy. Okay, don't don't go into enforce. All right, now start imagining some scenarios. Start imagining um, the folks who we know, or maybe listeners don't know, are uh, working in red states to provide uh, underground abortions. What happens if one of these states with heavy laws, Texas decides that they're going to arrest uh, uh, a New Yorker? Yeah. Um, and they're going to put that New Yorker away in prison for a long time. And New York says, uh-uh, give us our, our person back. Ah, suddenly now or something. Let's pay attention to Ron DeSantis's his white alligator private militia, not answerable to federal federal power. Yeah, um, that's an old playbook. That's a segregation playbook. He's you know he's 
he's hinting that, you know, he'll stand in the doorway. Maybe he will. Maybe he won't. Yeah. And that's we, in Florida's in effect, a fascist state at this point, isn't it? Uh, I, I mean, in the loosest possible sense, it's, got the, it's got the apparatus yeah. to keep building toward that. And I think it's important to remember that um, if it is the good news is if it, I mean, it's, we know how horrible it is, but if it is a fascist state, it's a quite a weak one because <laughs> it, with, you know, we see DeSantis trying to enforce things on, you know, so-called blue areas, and sometimes he can, and sometimes he can't, right? Yeah. yeah. So he doesn't have that kind of full power. We see the hints of the police state, police arresting people for voting and things like that and mm-hmm. so on. Um, it's not full-fledged. And this is why I always always say, like, this is not, an, I don't know if you saw the news. There's a, a little story in Franklin, Tennessee. And for those who don't know, that's a very wealthy and conservative suburb outside Nashville, mm-hmm. where a lot of the sort of, you know, the bro country elite uh, reside. And um, they had a city council member who ran, was running for mayor of their town. And um, she had a, when I call these folks Nazis, I'm not speaking figuratively or insulting them. That's just their bag. They're Nazis. Um, she she had a Nazi honor guard, right? Um, and but other than that, she really spoke the language of contemporary conservatism. She was a Trumper, and uh, she got thrashed in their election. Wow. Every candidate, in fact, who the so-called Moms for Liberty endorsed, got thrashed. And so that, to me, is very very promising. Yeah. And it's what happens when we start looking beyond cable news and into these little local stories. And that's sort of why I try to do my book the way I did. Instead of like the big abstraction, I just drive around the country. And so like, what's happening here? What's happening there? That helps me understand that my own very blue state of Vermont is not as blue as people think. Yeah, I can drive across the state and see so many Trump flags, so many Gadsden flags, Confederate flags. And worst of all, I write about this. This is the scariest one. If you see this and your neighbor flying it, watch out. It's an American flag, but it's all black. It's a shades of black, not the Blue Lives Matter flag, the black and white with a blue stripe. This is shades of black. And what it means for those who fly it is a belief in a coming civil war, but not only that, a commitment to taking no prisoners. Kill everybody. Jesus Christ, yeah. It is a genocide. That doesn't mean that the the knucklehead who flies it is actually going to do that, Mm. but it means he's dreaming of it. Okay, we're going to pause for a short break. We'll be back with more Jeff Charlotte right after these words. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You know, one thing I always uh, 
contend with as a podcaster and a writer, Jeff, is uh, sometimes when I talk about people like Donald Trump or the MAGA movement or what I've seen on Fox News Channel or heard on AM Talk Radio, I get this pushback. Why, why are you giving these people more air and paying attention to what they're saying? And I, my reaction to that is, and I'll put it in the form of a question for you, Jeff, which is, should uh, liberals, moderates, et cetera, normals in general terms, spend more time learning about what's happening on the other side, learning about things like the flag you were just talking about or exposing themselves to what's happening in some of these mega churches? Should we be more ensconced and knowledgeable in terms of this brewing fascism that's taking place? Or is it better to just kind of go la, 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 not listening? I mean... It's definitely better for your health to go la la la. I know, I know. But they knock on your door. I and then it's, so it it's not so good for your health. Yeah. Um, look, I, I will say this. You know, first of all, the, the the question: Why are you giving them air? Uh, mm. We're not giving them anything. This is the imagination that we are still the center. That somehow that they are the fringe. No, yeah. friend. If we're in a, talking on a liberal show, we're the fringe. And people say, but there's more of us than are of them. And I'm like, tell me, show me a fascist country that where fascism ever came to power with a majority. That's not what it does. That's <laughs> right. not what it does. That's not the threat. Uh, and and yeah, you're right. If there's a fair election, we wouldn't lose. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not even an if. Like if that, that's a hypothetical that won't happen, right? It's not going to be a fair election, right? So, so we have to contend with this, right? But I do say I'm an all hands on deck guy. I'm a, a popular front guy. You don't want to do this. You want to go la 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 because you're going to say like, you know what? My, my good deed is I'm going to go work in my local soup kitchen. Great. Mm-hmm. You don't need to learn it. You don't need to buy my book. Uh, you're going to say, I'm going to, I'm working on this program. I'm doing community garden. Great. That's, that's enough. you're in the fight or how about you i I just love my local library now you're on the front lines (laughs) now you're on the front lines and that's where i say like you do need to learn about it because if you're not doing any of those things yeah you need to be i don't care what you do but you need to be engaged in building a vital democratic culture because the opposite of fascism is not anti-fascism it's democracy and democracy is not something we have it's something we do you got to make up it every day you wake up you make the democracy just like the donuts right you've got do it. And you can do it on any front. And maybe you say, I all I need to know is that it's dangerous, so I'm going to go work on my school board. Or maybe uh, you want to say, hey, look, um, I want to understand this because what's happening now with school boards has happened before. It's how that that moral majority of the 70s and 80s formed. They noticed, hey, you know what? You know what? We can't get it. We can't really get folks elected to Congress right now. But you know where nobody goes? School boards. Yeah, and right. They took a lot of school boards. And that's now I'm seeing the great news is I'm seeing folks uh, pushing pushing back. I was uh, given a reading in uh, my hometown. I was connecting to New York, upstate New York, a uh, little blue dot, but a mostly kind of red area. And all the school boards in the area were contested, and all but one beat them back. That's great because people paid attention because they said, "Ah, you know, I'd rather." be having fun and watching sports, but I got to know about this and I might have to go down to that meeting and I might have to get involved um, because this isn't somewhere else. This is right here. I'm sitting talking to you now in Hanover, New Hampshire. Very, 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 very blue. My kid is over there at the high school and I have I have a queer child and we have a well-funded group that is challenging, threatening the jobs of queer teachers, uh, scaring the hell out of my kid and others and i'm i'm in la 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 land mm-hmm. and it's and i think i think the imagination that this is somewhere else 
is the delusion that no one can afford. Now, how you resolve that, you don't have to read my book. I think it's a pretty good book. It's pretty entertaining and there's some hope in it. But, you know, if you'd rather read novels, that's fine. Um, but uh, unless unless you want to learn about this, um, the day your rights get taken away, you better pay attention. Well, you absolutely put your ass on the line for this book. And as I was reading through it, I kept thinking about what Trump says about journalists perpetually. Every time he gets a chance, he calls them, of course, the enemies of the people. And whenever I think about that, Jeff, I, I go to some of the reporting that I see in some papers of record, certainly on cable news, and the people who normalize all of this. And I wonder if they're aware that Trump is likely going to come for the enemies of the people first. You know, when I see you know someone downplaying the impact of Trumpism yeah. or something on cable news, I'm like, do you not understand that you're at the top of the list in, in all of this? He keeps talking about the enemies of the people. He's talking about you on cable news channel X. Is that something that ever occurs to you as far as what the ramifications of this are? I mean, do absolutely. It's, yeah. it's, breaking, it's breaking my heart, Bob, because yeah. I have to say. I did. I, I knew that the media might do in 2020 for 2024 a replay of 2020. I didn't know they were going to do a replay of 2016. Yeah, it's exactly and, and look, it. Some people have changed. Some people get it, and that's good. But it's astonishing. And I think, I mean, I've been uh, involved in media criticism for a long time, going back to the early 2000s and mm -hmm. working with a, a, a great media critic named Jay Rosen. And he's got a terrific formulation. Oh, yeah. For press, he says, it's, he says, you've got to follow the stakes not the odds, right? Ugh. The odds, Mickey Hill is up, Mickey Hill is down. Doesn't matter, what's at stake, mm -hmm. right? What's at stake? And so we see a lot of the press doing odds coverage right now. Um, we see that denial. I, very, the second book event I did for the Undertow, virtual event, um, very friendly bookstore, and they'd had, they thought this would be a great idea, and they invited a, uh, uh, a New York Times, senior New York Times political reporter named Reed Epstein. Um, kind of a, a centrist guy. He's been called out a few times for his uh, a little bit of bias, but whatever. Mm. Um, he's no fascist. He's not a fascist at all. But he, in fact, uh, it was a very strange book event because he was supposed to be my, my speaking partner. And he made clear right away that he hadn't read the book, wouldn't read the book because the New York Times did all the reporting that mattered. And he didn't think we needed to use these dirty words, the F word, the R word. Oh. That, racist i was like okay all right all right let's i respect it let's let's I, I don't share it but let me understand it and i was wanted to understand what his historical understanding of fascism was now if he had one he wouldn't tell me it seemed to be that he thought the f word fascist was like the n word it was just a dirty word right but no it's a word with meaning and i feel like i've got some credibility here because i haven't been throwing it at everybody i don't like forever and ever I wrote a book in which I said, hey, I think it's overstated. And there's more than one kind of bad under the sun. Not every kind of bad is fascist. Right. Um, this kind is. Yep. We can look at the historical scholars. I recommend a book called Anatomy of Fascism by Robert O. Paxton, a great historian, but writing in an accessible way, drawing on all the European movements. Now, that limits it because, of course, fascism is a global problem. But it does, does give you some, 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 some programs to do that. So... I will say, look, there's some, there's been some improvement in the media. Like 10 years ago, if I use, I, I write for mainstream publications and so on. If I use the term white supremacy, not a chance was going to get in. Now, you know, the Fox News will use the term white supremacy. It's, it's not yeah. a contested. We know, you know, uh, it's, it, it's there. Even the F word, fascist, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
you're not going to get shut down. You, 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 you know, someone might say, no, I'm against using it. But it's on the table. Authoritarian, the Washington Post has been lately describing uh, uh, Trumpism as a, a functionally authoritarian movement. Uh, and I can name reporters who are good, but I can also say this, and I'll say this, and I say this to every liberal audience, right? Every time you read an article by Maggie Haberman in the New York Times that you hate, and this happens because I criticize the media a lot, people say, that's why you canceled my subscription. <laughs> I'm like, oh, right. you really struck a blow for freedom. Trump is quaking now. <laughs> Um, that is a great point. It, yeah. It's a, a failure to understand that media organizations are vast, always dissatisfying, but the big ones with the big resources can do things that I can't do. You know, I'm, I don't have I don't have a team. I don't have a whole data team to work with me. Um, uh, I can't dig in on uh, I don't have the expertise to dig on dig in like David Fahrenheit on taxes and things like that. Tax returns. Um, those are big media organizations. And we must contest them, fight them, push back, and so on. But yeah. we don't abandon them any more than we abandon democracy because we're so disappointed by our choices. Is there any hope, Jeff, for America to pull up on the controls before we crash into the ground? Is is this going to resolve? Are cooler heads going to prevail? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with, I'm, I'm hoping for the warmer heads. I'm not the hot heads. <laughs> the, warm heads. the folks yeah. who are warm with love. The folks, I, I mean that. I mean that in a, a little bit of a preacherly sense. Is there any hope? There's all the hope in the world. Yeah. Hope is not something that you have. Mm. And I'm, I, forgive me, liberals, because I know where a lot of us are upset that, that Brother Cornell West is running. Um, and I think he's doing the wrong thing, too. But I've spent a lot of time with him over the years, and he is a wise, wise man. This is a mistake. But he makes that crucial, critical point that hope is not something you experience. You don't like say, well, I've studied for my test. I hope I do well. That's not hope. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a calculation of the odds. Hope is what's there when there's no reason to think. Yeah. I haven't studied for my test at all, and I know nothing. I hope I get through this. Hope is rooted in despair, right? And I think we're all familiar with the possibility that despair was there in your question, right? Yeah. And that means the hope is there too. And that means though the cooler heads, no, the technocracy is not gonna get us through it. The the technocrats, mm -hmm. um, we're not going back to normal. How can we, but we voted for Joe Biden. How come we're going back to normal? Because I don't know what physics you learned in high school. You can't go back in time. <laughs> yeah. This shit happened. And you know who's really clear-eyed about this? The never-Trumpers. Those senior Republican officials who are never-Trumpers. Yeah. They are clearer-eyed than so many liberal pundits. They're like, yeah, no, we're never going back. The Republican Party is not savable. It is fascist. I know. I helped make it that way. A lot of them take accountability. Mm -hmm. um, and they say, uh, this is not a, we can't go back. You know, in the book, I quote my kids' favorite children's book when they were little. And it's got a, a, a family keeps encountering. They're going on a bear hunt. They just want to see a bear. And they keep encountering a big river or whatever. And, and each time there's a little refrain, can't go under it, can't go over it, just got to go through it. Mm -hmm. And that's banal and simple. But good God, how much of our political class is dedicated to pretending that we don't have to go through it. Uh, there's a lot of hope. There's yeah. going to be a lot of suffering. Uh, we're going we're going to go through it. But I really do, actually. I'm an optimist. Uh, I think people have a hard time seeing that in this book, but I am. Um, that's why I close it in. We haven't talked about it. I close and end it with uh, people like, what's Harry Belafonte doing at the beginning of the book? <laughs> One, he's got the best best diagnosis of whiteness and white supremacy yep. I have encountered. Two, because he was, when he died at 96, he died full of joy and full of anger. 
um, that man was in the struggle all his life. Like Harry Belafonte, the banana boat guy. And I'm like, yeah, that's the way people sometimes get smoothed down, sanded off. And like, we forget he was a deeply radical man, instrumental to the civil rights movement. And he reminds us of the long struggle. What's going to happen if Trump is elected in November in 2024? I mean, I had the good fortune of at a very young age having two heart attacks the week before Trump was elected in 2016. Oh my God. I made it through. And so I was the guy who woke up and was like, whew, well, looks like uh, fascism may be coming to America. Yeah. And I'm lucky to be alive to see it, you know? Like what's gonna happen the next day and the next day, the struggle is long. And I think we gotta resist that crisis the sky is falling, man. The sky has always been falling. Yeah, and that doesn't mean like do nothing. I mean, the struggle is long. It, it, you know, uh, um, uh, but I do. I think there's a lot of hope. Yeah, it's interesting. Speaking of never Trumpers, uh, I think it was uh, Tom Nichols at some point uh, tweeted something along the lines of, "You know what? Ultimately, at the end of the day, life for humans on this planet has never been better than it is right now." You know, it won't go that far. <laughs> no, it won't go that far. In okay. fact, I, I just did an event with Jeff Tubin, um, yeah. and uh, uh, he was a smart guy. He's got a new book about uh, Timothy McVeigh and those roots of the, the right and so on. But he was kind of taking the line of like, you know, let's keep things in perspective. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, U.S. poverty is lower. And he said, you know, America used to be an apartheid state. And this is where he got me. And he says, you know, and like, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't be a gay kid in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm in Cincinnati. Um, and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, this, but, you know, we got to, we, we can, we can visit our friend Charles Dickens to help understand this tale of two cities. <laughs> it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Um, and, and that apartheid state, uh, one, we got a whole lot of folks who are dedicated to rebuilding it. Two, um, uh, our schools are more segregated now than they were under that apartheid state. Isn't that amazing? Three, uh, it might be better to be queer in New York City, uh, but in 20 states, my own child is criminalized. Criminalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, um, it is the best of times. It is the worst of times. Perfect. It is, I'm not with Nichols on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, And Nichols rejects the term fascist, but I don't care we're fighting the same, we're fighting the same fight. And yeah, I think we yeah. shoulder to shoulder. The book is called the undertow scenes from a slow civil war. It is a must read volume required reading. I got a link in the description under this episode to uh, go and buy it right now. You can also follow Jeff at Jeff Charlotte on Twitter or whatever the hell it's called right now. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. This is a huge honor. Your book, oh my God, it's uh, the book of the year as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, it's, and it's something we all need to, we all need to stick our faces in that white hot plasma stream and, and get a sense of what's going on out there so we're better prepared and we can better deal with all of it. Congratulations on this book, Jeff. Thanks very much, Bob. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's fall into each other The light is fading fast The days are few So let us do Each one like it's the last The stream will be a river Before the claws of dread Grab my heart and make it smart With things I should have said You never hear it coming It's faint enough to miss So listen for the drumming Of a slow 
Oh 